emotions, the heart, that's like scary as hell. So where am I going to go? I'm going to go out in the sunshine and I'm going to climb mountains and I'm going to wrestle because I win and I can summit mountains and I can count on something that's predictable with what I can put forth in the world. This other stuff is too scary. So I think that that's the double-edged sword of these things. Maybe those entrepreneurs, they're not comfortable in those calm times. And that can be unhealthy because then you just keep trying to do harder and harder and harder things and riskier and scarier things. And it's a path to death or to depression or sadness or whatever you want to call it. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit podcast that sits down with amazing leaders every week to discuss what it takes to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to build history-making companies. Speaking of incredible companies, we don't do sponsorships on the show, so if you're inspired by the stories of my guests, my call to action is to reach out and let's find a great home for you in the Kleiner portfolio. The name is definitely unique. It's Persian. It's like Rubin with a J. In Iranian culture, they would pronounce it Jubin with a soft J. Jubin. Yep. And uh, I've never met another one. I haven't either, but I have a friend from Iran who I've hiked with. We hiked Mount Ararat in Turkey. He came over the border with his girlfriend. And sadly, he got out of Iran because he said, you know, this is probably six years ago. He said him and his friends were just getting beat up on the streets by these like kind of thugs, sadly, you know? Oh, no. Yeah. And so he got out of the country. And now he's in Australia. He translated my book into Farsi. My, what? My first book, Touch the Top of the World, into how Farsi. Many, how many languages is the book translated into? I don't into? know, like 10 languages. And Farsi is one of them? Yeah. So I loved it. And he's the greatest guy. And his brother, that's right. His brother is disabled. So that's why he picked up the book. And then he was inspired. And then, Yeah, exactly. So Have you had Persian food? Hell yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, it's the best. Have you climbed a mountain in Iran? I wanted to go to Damavan. Yeah. I've always wanted to. But then, you know, things fell apart over there a little bit with the relations. And I just thought like, I don't know, you tell me whether this is just absolutely stupid. But I thought like, okay, I'm a tiny bit high profile. Like, what if I went over there and I got thrown in jail or something? You know what I mean? You know, I don't think it would happen, but it could be. Look, here's the deal. I am Persian. Like, I am Iranian, and I have not gone there because it's tricky. Yeah, it's It's a little tricky, tricky, right? It's tricky. Now, this would be good publicity for them. Yeah. However, you're still American. Yeah. You know? It'd be a lot cooler for them if you were an Iranian (laughs) blind mountain climber. Yeah. You know? But I'd love to go climb Damavan and ski down because if you go in, like, April, that's a cool mountain to ski. It's like a big blob, so it's perfect skiing. Do you put skis on your back? Uh Uh-huh. And then hike the mountain? Uh-huh. Or you put them on your feet and you skin up the mountain. And you ski? They're synthetic nowadays, but they started out actual skins. And you know how a fur pelt will like kind of slide in one direction, but create friction in the other direction? Mm-hmm. So that's why you can slide up the mountain, but then it creates a little friction so you don't slide backwards. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. Well, this is a real pleasure to do. Thank you for having me and golden colorado like we were just talking about i've never been here before i'd never thought i would come to golden but this is a hell of an excuse to do it awesome yeah i don't even know what our sign says it says something like where the west begins or something like that <laughs> sure feels like it. yeah i am uh, sitting in your office here with you which is quite incredible behind you there's a picture of you ostensibly ice picking mount everest uh-huh. <laughs> and then you 
in a kayak in the Grand Canyon. Yeah. And then there's a fire extinguisher with a bunch of signatures on it. That's actually our oxygen bottle from Mount Everest Are you with serious? the signature of all my team. There are 13 of us. I had 12 teammates that expedition. So yeah, we all signed it. So that's our, that's an oxygen bottle. We probably have 20 of them in my garage. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. There's 20 of them? Yeah. Oh, it's so special. Don't forget the Wheaties box. I was just going to say, and the Wheaties box <laughs> behind you, that, is that real? Yeah. You were on the cover of a Wheaties box? <laughs> yeah. You look pretty good. Thank you. Got a good beard going. Yeah, my beard used to be nice and black, and now it's, as you can see, it's half gray, half black. How do you know? Everyone tells me. <laughs> yeah. just, I have mean friends that love to tell me how old I look. <laughs> I have a literally a climbing friend that showed up like two weeks ago to my door, and he looked at me and goes, your hairline's really receding. I'm like, thanks. Good morning to you, my friend. I'll tell you, I was watching you on... What was I watching? I was just watching you last night taking Will Smith into mm-hmm. a vo- an active volcano on, yeah. a- on Apple TV. Right. You look jacked. <laughs> you look great. You, yeah. look, you looked like you're in good shape. Well, I'm always out training. And then in the kayak, you were like huge. Yeah, I was really fit for that. Yeah. I imagine kayaking like that is just an incredible workout. Yeah. I mean, also, though, if you're out kayaking, like training six hours a day, you're just burning tons of calories and you're not eating that much. You just wind up getting more kind of cut, you know what I mean? And, and losing weight. And so your muscles pop out a little bit more. But I lift with friends. I, I lift a little bit, but I don't lift like I did in college, you know, like I'm not a meathead anymore because I realize that if you want to be a good climber or kayaker, you actually want to be thin. You don't want like a big chest. Right. And all these unnecessary muscles that aren't really built for navigation. Right. Do you experience other senses much more acutely than I would? Like taste and hearing. I hate to give you this answer, but yes and no. So one, no, it's a like a myth that when you go blind or you lose a sense, suddenly like God comes down and shines upon you and suddenly you're like, you have bionic senses of smell and everything, you know, like, oh, I can smell a McDonald's cheeseburger two miles away. No, it doesn't work like that. But for instance, when I learned Braille at first, right? At first, it felt like indistinguishable little dots. I couldn't tell anything. I was like, how would anyone ever figure out what I'm feeling under my fingertips? But over time with practice, these neural connections begun to... And I think what I've heard is like in the space that used to process vision, other neural connections start to build. And so, bam, you can start to distinguish things with your fingers. Same thing with smell. I start to distinguish, you know, things that maybe you wouldn't because I'm paying attention to them and practicing. Mm-hmm. If somebody dropped a coin on the pavement, I might be able to tell the difference between, say, a quarter and a dime, the way it sounds, only because I practice right. listening and distinguishing. So, yeah, these neural connections do begin to build in your brain and you do get better at things, I think. But it's partly because you're struggling and trying to figure out how to pay attention. Like when I started kayaking, I couldn't keep a straight line. I'd be on a lake and I'd be kayaking and my friend would start laughing and I'd say, what's so funny? And he'd say, well, you spun around in a 180 and now you're going in the opposite direction. I'm like, I have no idea. So I had to build that awareness as well. So yeah, when you don't have a billion HD pixels with your eyeballs that are so powerful, you got to learn to use what you got. Yep. It's incredible, man. 
Well, look, I have so much to ask you, and I just really, I'm just genuinely, I couldn't sleep last night because I was just so excited to ask you all these questions that I have. So thank you again. The story, I was just relaying it to you, is quite a funny one of how this actually happened, but a fan of my show connected us with someone who you know pretty well, and they said, I can get you to Eric. And, oh, he's the Eric Whisper. And it, exactly, he's the Eric Whisper, and you spoke at Zoom's kickoff or, yeah. or something. You spoke at Zoom, the company. Yes, yes. And he was talking about how inspirational it was. And I just said, man, I got, this guy sounds unbelievable. And <laughs> anyway, here we are six months later after a few delays because you were doing pretty serious mountain climbing. Mm-hmm. And that was my buddy, Paul Stoltz, who I wrote my second book with. He's an ex- expert in adversity, helping to change people's relationship with adversity. I've been a huge fan and admirer of Paul for many years. So yeah, he's been good to me. Well, look, I kick things off exactly the same way on every episode. So I'm going to do the same for this one, which is I'll read your background back to you. Okay. I'll tell you, this is a little bit of a deviation from the normal Ah. building companies, if you will. However, I'd argue you've built the company and you've built one of the most badass ones that I've ever seen. Um, And so let me just go ahead and give you my version of your background, which is a little bit different than most people's resume. And then we can go from there. Wow. I'm excited. Okay, good. So you went to BC, Boston College. You actually, after school, if I'm not mistaken, were a teacher. Yes. And then you coach wrestling. Yes. Okay. And then basically, I'm going to skip through a bunch of stuff, but at 14 years old, you went blind, correct? Yes. Yes. Can we draw this distinction between what different types of blind are? Yeah. I mean, there's a million different nuances of blindness or visual impairment. So I was born legally blind. I had this congenital eye disease that affected my retinas. It's a very rare disease called retinoschisis. So I don't know. The story goes that my dad was he's a football player and he was passing a football around and my eyes weren't quite tracking. They were kind of shaking. And that led to a bunch of doctor's visits all around the country. And eventually they said, he's got this disease called retinoschisis that will unravel his retinas and there's no cure. And by the time he's an early teenager, he'll be totally blind. So yeah, I went totally blind my freshman year in high school, actually two weeks before I started my freshman year, I was at my grandparents' house in Florida And I remember walking down the dock and I couldn't see to walk down the dock. And I refused to use a cane because I was stubborn. I didn't want to be blind. And I was like, F that. And I walked off the side of the dock and I did a flip in the air and I landed on my back on the deck of a boat. And I thought, oh my God, Eric, you better start using a cane. I can't see to take a step. That was a big moment in my life. Where you knew you're officially like this actually is blind. blind. This yeah. is what blind means. And you don't see color or light or anything, correct? Well, over time, I developed a secondary disease called glaucoma, and it increased the pressure in my eyes to this ungodly level, you know, not to get technical, but you have a certain amount of pressure in your eyes. Mine went to like 10 times that number, and uh, I was going to lose my eyes anyway, so I had both my eyes removed, so I have prosthetic eyes now. Yeah, so I, I see nothing except... What is cool is that, you know, when I could see as a kid, I saw at a certain level, you know, I never saw great, like I could see faces, not great detail, but I could see colors and things like that. And so when I woke up having lost my eyes, having them removed, I still see in my brain the way I did when I was a kid. But now I'm using my other senses to put the picture together. So like, Jubin, I'm imagining you right now, like sitting across the table, the desk from me and the microphone. And I know what those things look like in my brain. So from memory, I'm putting the pieces together and I'm seeing a picture in my brain. Yeah. 
That makes sense. Very curious what you think a Jubin looks like, but it's, <laughs> it's going to be disappointing. I'll tell you what. Well, uh, one is that I'm on this microphone, so your voice is like all over the room. So I'm picturing you very divine <laughs> right now. You're like, really, you're all around me and surround sound. So uh, yeah, you're Old Testament, Jubin. One man's divinity is another's obnoxious and annoying. So I'm, I'm glad I could skew towards one end of that <laughs> spectrum. When you dream, what do you dream in? I dream in the same way that I could see when I was a kid. Yeah. So I can sort of see things, vague colors, you know, shades of gray and black and white and faces. But the weird thing is that like when you put together faces in my mind after not seeing for what, 30 years, they kind of come together like a cartoon figure. So sight is not super reliable for me. If I was talking about my true connection with the world, it is through my other senses. One, I have to use my other senses to get information, to scrap information from the world so I can be fully aware of where I am in space. But also, just as important is experiencing beauty through your other senses. So, like, if somebody describes a beautiful sunset, I go, wow, that's beautiful. But it's really like I'm remarking more on the beauty of, like, a friend took the time to try to describe something beautiful that he's seeing and I'm seeing it through his eyes. But if I really want to have a direct experience, it's hearing ice crystals explode onto a lake or hearing a clearing in the forest, like where the sound absorbs into the snow or smelling something really incredible, you know, in the outdoors, like a beautiful pine forest. Those are my direct connections to beauty now. Wow. So, okay, so not to get sidetracked from the background here. Oh, yeah, sorry. You, uh, you've written three books. It's my fault. I'm just so excited. There's so many rabbit holes I can go down. You've completed the seven summits, which yeah. in my understanding is the tallest peak in every continent. Yeah. Only 150 people in the world have done this-ish. Right. And uh, nobody blind. Don't forget the eighth continent. There's a eighth continent they call Oceania or Australasia. Right, which climbed. was there was controversy around that, right? Because a little they, bit, they, they, yeah. Because some people think that the seven summits can't be completed unless you do that one. Yeah, others, exactly. others don't. Right, and that's on the island of New Guinea. And by the way, it's all in people's minds. It's just an adventure to go travel and have great adventures with you your friends. You did not set out to go be the seven summits man. No. Yeah, of course not. I no, didn't in think fact, so. I get, I'm really careful when people go to me, oh, you know, you really haven't climbed the tallest mountain in the world because there's a mountain in Ecuador, Chimborazo, that if you measure from the center of the earth, you know, because at the equator, the globe's a little oblong, it's a little fatter. So like, if you measure from the center of the earth, that's the tallest mountain. I'm like, fine, who cares? Like, I don't, I'm not out here to like, I don't, I'm not trying right. to set records. It's totally. just, I love living. I love doing these things. And, and it happens to be the a first. Yep. So you've climbed all seven summits. Denali was your first one in 95. Yes. Then El Capitan in 96. Kilimanjaro in 97. Argentina's Aconcagua. Yep. Aconcagua. Okay. In 99. And then uh, Canada's Polar Circus in 2000. Antarctica's Mount Vincent in 2000. Mm -hmm. Wow, both in the same year. Mount Everest in 2001. Mm -hmm. At the time, still the only blind person to ever do Mount Everest? No, now there's three of us in the world. How cool uh, is that? Yeah, it's really that, awesome. That, My friend Andy broke Holzer, someone's belief barrier to do that. Well, totally, because I met Andy in Austria climbing, and he got inspired, and he set out to do his own Seven Summits quest. So his third try on Everest, he made it. And then this Chinese guy, blind guy, wanted to climb it, and just, I think about a year ago, he got to the summit. So... I love it. I love the fact that we're a club of three. We should have a fraternity. Super special. <laughs> you guys can like cheers your oxygen tanks. Yeah, together. we can sign each other's bottles. <laughs> exactly. 
Then you did Russia's Mount Elbrus in 2002. Mm-hmm. Then Australia's. And skied down it. And skied down it. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> that's crazy. That's so cool. And then Australia's Mount Kosciuszko. Uh-huh, Kosciuszko. Uh-huh. Okay. And then the Karts. Karstens or Punkak Jaya or whatever you want to call Where's it. Where's that? That's in New Guinea. New Guinea in 2008. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then. And I, I don't mean to like brag or anything, but like between those, I was climbing hundreds of other mountains that nobody would know or care how many mountains are you climbing in a year i don't know hundreds 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 yeah Yeah. and then as if this wasn't enough like in 2014 you kayaked the grand canyon 277 miles you did it in three weeks yeah you trained to do that for six years yes you have been on the cover of time magazine oprah's interviewed you i was watching you last night on apple tv taking will smith into yeah. a live volcano disney would be pissed that you said apple oh TV. sorry disney <laughs> sorry disney i meant i meant disney <laughs> i have a subscription i promise uh and then uh and then uh you took will smith into there that was crazy you have carried the torch for both the summer and the winter olympics like i said you've written three books to the ceo of touch the top uh, vice chairman of No Barriers, you've been on stage speaking with people like George Bush, Al Gore, Tony Blair, Colin Powell, Condoleezza Rice. Unbelievable. Can I rewind to some humble beginnings? Yeah. What was growing up for you like? What was your first job? My first job? Well, okay. So, you know, besides like raking leaves and my- Or someone paid you to do yeah, something. Yeah. So my, my freshman year in college, I had a friend who I met and he lived out on Nantucket Island. And he said, if you come out to the Nantucket Island, I have a cool job for you. You can live out there and I'm going to get an apartment. It's going to be really cool. We're, you know, it's going to be awesome. And so he didn't, unfortunately, tell the hotel that I was blind. And I went out and got this credit card reader that could read credit cards out loud. And I had like a lot of systems that I had thought it through. And I got there and literally I showed up. They looked at me with shock and said, the job's been filled. And then with my friends, I drove by the next couple of days and there was a help wanted sign. So they, it was a total lie. And so I never got that job. And then I went around Nantucket that summer because I thought, okay, what can I do now? I could be a dishwasher. I'd wash plenty of dishes. And I went to this restaurant and they said, we'd love to hire you. No hard feelings, but we can't because we have a really big kitchen and I think you'd get lost. Maybe you should look for a smaller kitchen. So I went to a smaller one and they're like, oh, you know... Our kitchen's kind of small. It's tight quarters. You'd bump into things. So I was like, okay, what's the logical next step? Go to a medium-sized kitchen. And they're like, hey, the pots are too hot. You'd probably burn yourself. It'd be a liability. Never got a job that summer. So I had to go home and disgrace. My dad, remember, had to come pick me up. And I went home for the summer with no job. That next fall, I went to Boston College. I applied for a job in the weight room checking people in. The guy's like, no, I don't think you can do that job. And I said, well, look, I've charted the fact that like I've shown up at the gym 12 times in the first few months and people have not shown up to check people in. So the gym is closed. I'll be there on time. I'll be there reliably. I swear, you know, don't overlook me. And so that was my first job at BC, checking people in to the weight room. And you were fully, at what age were you fully blind? 14. 14. And am yeah, I so saying I it the fully way, blind. fully blind? That's that? Fully blind, yeah. Fully blind, okay. Yeah, totally blind. 14 years old. Yeah. You'd mentioned going back to your father, empty-handed, if you will, without, yeah. a, without a job. Yeah. True or false, year before you went fully blind at 13, you lost your mom? A year after I went blind, I, my, a my year mom after. died in, in a car accident. Yeah. It was terrible. She hit a tree and she bled out in the hospital. Yeah. So I lost my mom. I was at wrestling camp. And dad came and told you? 
my dad came and told me and he showed up a day early and I was like, dad, the tournament's not till tomorrow. Like, what are you doing here early? And then he told me that she had died in a car accident. I still get emotional. I mean, that's like the hardest thing I've ever experienced in my life. When you just feel like you've come to grips with the blindness, yeah. what's your emotional state like during that point? And then all of a sudden hearing the news about your mother. It was a double knockout blow. <laughs> yeah. Going blind and already, you know, thinking about the hardship of that, the isolation, you know, you're already a teenager. So you're thinking about I'm now blind and I'm like, there's this expanse between me and the rest of the world. I didn't want to be blind. I didn't want to be different. You know, you want to fit in as a kid. You want to be a part of the food fights, <laughs> right? You want to be the cool guy driving around, picking your girlfriend up. And I was none of those things. And so I felt super isolated and looking kind of at my life through a rearview mirror, like all the things I'd lost and I'd never experienced and wrestling with that at the time. And then I lost my mom and I realized that blindness was nothing compared to that. And to be honest with you, death is one of those things that I still struggle with. All of us do because it's not like this perfect, beautiful, motivational message that like, okay, blindness, you can bounce back from death. It's totally different. It's the ultimate adversity. And the only thing I can say about that is that I think in a way, the spirit and the characteristics and the whatever is left over of that person comes into you. And that's, I remember after I lost my mom, I was part of a club at school where it was teachers and students who had lost a parent. And the teacher said, hey, write a letter to yourself because those parents exist within you now. So I wrote a letter to myself, I mailed it to myself, and I wrote it in Braille, and I read it, and I got it in my mailbox, and I read it. So I do feel that connection with my parents, you know, when I'm in the mountains, when I'm in a tent, when I'm alone, I can kind of like summon up that connection with them, because I do feel that they exist on in some way, whether it's just in my mind or not, I don't know. Once all that happened, the blindness and your mother what happened with the relationship with your dad? He was a pretty hardcore yeah. Marine guy, right? Did it make you closer? Did you go in a corner? How did that kind of work out? Ah, uh, yeah, I know. I mean, I like my dad would be away at work all day and I'd lay in my mom's bed and I would just like try to smell the sheets and say, where did she go? You know, like she's not here anymore. Where is she? You know, it's so mysterious. It's so sad. But my dad really stepped it up. He was a hard Marine and uh, a business guy. And so he'd leave for work. And I think his commute was like two hours each way from Connecticut. But he would come back and he'd go to all my wrestling matches. He'd call me up and say, hey, they're frozen fish sticks in the freezer. Thaw them out. And we'll have dinner, you know. So, yeah, he became as good of a dad as he could be. And we'd w lift weights together and we'd take walks together. And as I said, he never missed a wrestling match. He loved following my wrestling career. So yeah, he was an incredible dad. He really did step up, even though I have to say it was lonely. Like my brothers were all away at school and I was alone in that house and trying to get my way to wrestling practice and get rides to school. And yeah, it was a lot of work. Not only was he at all your wrestling matches, he flew a plane over the summit of Denali when you got there. So they made a movie out of my first book, Touch the Top of the World. And I remember the writer saying, hey, you know, the challenge with this story is that there's no conflict. Let's create some conflict. Let's have your dad not believe in what you're doing and you guys have a big fight and then eventually he comes around and believes in you. I'm like, but that's a total lie. That's not what happened. My dad was my biggest cheerleader from day one. When I said, I'm going to go climb Denali, 
He's like, cool, let me tell me about your team, tell me about your training. You know, he was like a good checks and balances, but he never said no. He never said, hey, that's a stupid idea. I think he wished he could be with me. If he was 20 or 30 years younger, he would have been doing all this stuff with me. But yeah, so when I summited Denali, we radioed down to an airstrip near the mountain through like a channel of communication through the base camp manager. They were waiting in Talkeetna and they took off in a twin otter and they flew above the summit and they watched us take our last steps. I actually said to my friend Jeff at the time who was standing next to me on the summit, I said, do you think that they're going to know I'm down here, like that I made it? And he goes, oh yeah, they're going to know because you're the only one waving your ski pole in the wrong direction. (laughs) I'm like, thanks, asshole. Oh, man. And then when you were climbing El Capitan, where is that? Uh, it's in Yosemite That's what Valley. I thought. Yeah, yeah okay. it's a big... That's what I thought. I think it's got to be the tallest granite monolith in America, if not the world, or, or one of them. And yeah. he was in a neighboring... He was on a neighboring mountain with a telescope watching yeah, you? Yeah, he was watching us climb over three days, just laying there with his monoscope, just watching us creep our way up the rock face. Wow. Yeah, and then he climbed Kilimanjaro with me in 1997, so he wanted to get a taste of what the mountains were like. I don't know if he loved it, because it was like a 20-hour day summiting and going over the... We decided to have this 5,000-foot summit day, and then we went all the way over the backside of the mountain and all the way down. It was a huge day. I think he was crushed. When you're doing it, doing 20-hour days like that, do you love it? My ex-wife, when we were climbing Kilimanjaro... I said, hey, the summit day, That's our. this is our honeymoon. And she said, no, it's an endless nightmare. And I was like, okay, that's one way of looking at it. So yeah, it can be an endless nightmare. It takes a lot of discipline in your mind to stay aware and energized for 20 hours. I don't know if climbers are the greatest athletes in the world, but they can really focus when they need to because a lot of times in the mountains, my friends will look at me and they'll say, okay, this is a no mistakes moment, no mistakes. And you know that you cannot make one mistake in this situation. Now, eventually when you get down the mountain and you're just back on the trail, sure, you can trip over a rock and fall and skin your knee, but there are certain moments where you cannot make a mistake. Can I read you a quote that I've heard you say after Denali? Yeah. You said, every few moments when I had thought I was at my absolute limit, I was able to push through it. And never once had I felt like collapsing in the snow as I had feared. Some limits were real, like the inability to climb a 20,000 foot peak before acclimatizing to the thin oxygen. But many more limits were conceived and imposed in my mind, and there was a torturous beauty in crossing them. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Well, it's a fascinating mind experiment to see how far you can push yourself. You know, like when I climbed Everest, I know we'll get to that later, but I thought, okay, it doesn't have to be like in the movies where you push yourself to the absolute limit and you fall down dead in the snow, you know, you can turn back with grace, but you have to know what those limits are. And in the beginning of my climbing career, actually, I should say my whole climbing career, you're pushing yourself. You don't know what those limits are. Sometimes you're right on the edge. I remember the first time I failed on Aconcagua, I was right on the edge. What does that mean? I was just perceiving reality through a straw. I was I had altitude sickness and my friends were talking to me and, you know, it would take like a long time to process what they were saying. I remember my friend Chris Moore saying, don't die on me. I'm like, I don't think I'm going to die here. But on Denali, there was a lady I remember that tried Denali like 
don't know, three or four times. And then she finally made it. And then she was coming down the mountain and she fell down in the snow and literally died. And I thought, okay, so people do have limits. Like they reach that threshold and they physically cannot recover. What is that limit? I never want to get there, but I, I want to know how close I can get. How do you know? Well, look at all the extreme athletes who have died. So nobody really knows. That's the trick. That's the puzzle. I mean, you have to be bold or you'll never summit anything. But at the same time, if you try to push that envelope time and time and time again, it's usually not a good ending. And I think about it in, in my world where we work with amazing entrepreneurs who yeah. are taking on 10 plus year missions to build incredible companies. Right. And sometimes it's very hard to know when we should turn around, when we should take another path, yeah. when we should keep going, even though it's difficult. Yeah. When knowing difficult and drawing the distinction between this is really hard versus this isn't working. It's a really fine line. And that's why so many people fail in business or die in the mountains. Because so like I went to this climb, it's a giant 3000 foot vertical and overhanging ice climb called Losar. The first time I went, I remember the temperatures were just too warm. We just hit it wrong. And so the temperatures were like 28 degrees in the early morning. And that means it's going to rise up to probably 40, 50 degrees, 45 degrees. And this climb was like a gun barrel with these giant daggers of ice just pointing downward. And if they break, there's a good chance they're going to come down and sweep you off the face and kill you. And my friend said, you know, e, it's sort of like our prime objective to come home alive. Like this climb will be here next year, mm -hmm. but we won't. So there's like an 80% chance you stand on top, 20% chance you get crushed by ice. And I was like, yeah, okay, that's an easy decision. And we turned back and I had to, I came back the next year and it was great conditions and we reached the summit. But then there are other mountains that I've been on. Like I went to Mount Kenya the first year. And it's supposed to be a sunny rock climb. And you have certain expectations of that. And then it wasn't. It was covered in ice and snow. And okay, so I thought we could easily turn back right now. But no, we could also do it if we change our expectations and change our approach. Because the mountain doesn't care. The mountain's not going to change. So you have to change your approach. So for us, we said, okay, if we want to slow down, if we want to carry more gear, warmer gear, if we bring different tools then we can approach this and we could still maybe get to the summit, even though the mountain gave us absolute unforeseen challenges. How often are you thinking about death? And this is not just a question for you because you're flying pretty close to the sun. You know, I've heard that the happiest people in the world are in Bhutan and they think about death multiple times a day. But you had said earlier that you have a different type of relationship with dying. Yeah, I mean... There's been times, you know, like I climbed a peak on Mount Huntington and we tried four times, fourth time we got up halfway up the peak at midnight. We built a little ledge and a little tiny platform. We we're sitting there on our butts with our feet hanging off the edge and it was totally freezing cold. I couldn't feel my feet and I thought this is as close as I ever want to come, as close as I'll probably ever come to just being over the edge and it's something that's maybe cool to experience like a little bit, but not that much. It's not that great. But it is kind of wild to know like, okay, like that pushed me as hard as I physically could and I still survived it. You know, we staggered out of that camp that next morning and climbed all the way till 
6 p.m. finally summited, repelled all the way down through the night. You know what I mean? So what your body and mind can handle is really way more than you think if you prepare the right way and your mindset is in the right place. So that's really cool to see, but it's not ultimately sustainable, I guess. I was with an entrepreneur this morning, CEO of a billion dollar company and uh, started four companies before this and in Boulder, actually. He was telling me how the times in between the startups, so like the times where there was a lull, yeah, you know, the startups are the hardest thing that he's ever done and some of them failed and some of them worked, but it's absolutely the hardest thing that he's ever aspired to do. Yeah. He was saying that the worst times were the times in between. Yeah. Where even though it was so hard doing the startup, it was his flow state. Yeah. Do you feel that way? Yeah. Is it boring just being amongst us? Yeah, but I check myself on that because as I've gotten older, I'm 53 now, and it took me a long time to realize that everything in life is a double-edged sword. And so when I was a kid, my mom was beautiful as can be, but she had some bipolarism. And so one minute she'd be loving you, and the next minute she'd be in the room for a couple days staring at the wall. And I realized that that kind of thing is unreliable. So what do you do as a kid? You run away and you kind of put up a protection and say, emotions, the heart, that's like scary as hell. So where am I going to go? I'm going to go out in the sunshine and I'm going to climb mountains and I'm going to wrestle because I win and I can summit mountains and I can count on something that's predictable with what I can put forth in the world. This other stuff is too scary. So I think that that's the double-edged sword of these things. Maybe those entrepreneurs, they're not comfortable in those calm times. And that can be unhealthy because then you just keep trying to do harder and harder and harder things and riskier and scarier things. And it's a path to death or to depression or sadness or whatever you want to call it. So I've really worked in the second half of my life on being comfortable, reading a book, taking a walk, sitting in the sunshine trying to meditate, all those kinds of things that are so important to the equation, the fabric of living, always wanting to be on the edge. It's just not, I don't think it works. I have also heard, again, in my world that once someone has achieved the pinnacle of what they think is achievement, let's call it an IPO. Let's call it an exit. Usually right after that is when they're the lowest. Yeah. Is that how you experience it too? Like once you climb, well, you're exhausted. I remember, like, it's Everest, a little different for you to be I, fair. Everest, I lost like almost forty pounds. So you're just psyched to come home and eat chocolate croissants and drink hazelnut lattes. But yeah, no, you, you kind of lose your mojo for a little while. That's natural. There's just like this ebb and flow of life. It ebbs after a climb because you need to rebuild your body, but also your psyche, your mojo. So yeah, th- I think that's natural. But Pasquale, the leader of our Everest team. He did the most incredible thing after that climb. I was coming down the mountain, having lived through the icefall, the Kumbu icefall, which is like a blind person's worst nightmare. Like literally, if I hated a blind person, I would stick him in the middle of the Kumbu icefall. (laughs) So I made it through alive. I got down and we celebrated. And the next morning he said, hey, Eric, I want to talk to you. Come over here and I want to talk in private. And I was like, okay, cool. Like he's going to have me sign his baseball cap or something. And he said, hey, your life is going to change now. And he goes, do me a favor. And he said, don't let this be the greatest thing you ever do. And 
God, that was amazing advice. It was so, it was Yoda advice because that's what he's saying, like addressing what you're talking about. He's saying, don't make this for your resume. Don't go home and get wrapped up in the awards and the trophies on your shelf and the oxygen bottle hanging from your wall. Those things become like a mausoleum and you're looking back in your life and it's the beginning of the end. Like use this as a catalyst to new areas of growth in your life. I think that's what he was saying, you know? And so, yeah, Everest became this incredible catalyst to so many more opportunities, building no barriers, the organization. We work with thousands of people a year. So Everest was that beautiful catalyst. It wasn't just that thing I look back on and I go, God, that was really awesome when I was 33 years old. I think that's the worst thing. And it doesn't mean that I'm necessarily going to climb anything that's harder than Everest. It's more like I want to stretch myself every part of my life until I die. I want to keep stretching myself and growing and scaring myself just a little bit. You've said about Everest, I worked hard not to buy into the idea that standing on top meant tremendous success while falling a few feet short meant utter failure. Why? Because then you have to just live with all this regret, you know? Meaning like I was 20 feet from the peak. Yeah. And by the way, when you write a book like that and you say something like that, you're preaching to yourself because I am the kind of guy that has to stand on the summit. Yeah. I'm very ger- dramatic. <laughs> I'm, I got, I'm very linear and I have to get to the top. And there's ice climb I've tried like three times in Canada. And literally last time I got 80 feet from the summit and we got benighted, which is nightfall comes on and my friend didn't feel comfortable doing the last little bit. Now, is that so stupid? But I still have a burning desire to go back and finish that 80 feet. I know how silly that is intellectually. So yes, you're climbing for the experience. I know it's a cliche and you can't get wrapped up in the summit fever where it's absolutely meaningless unless you get to the top. I mean, that's again, that's like something you're doing for your resume or your ego instead of doing it for the celebration of trying big things with great people. Wanting to go back to finish off that 80 feet, where's that coming from? Why do you think you do that? Oh, gosh. Well, if, if I have a couch, I could lay down and you could, <laughs> you, we could really dissect that. I was born that way. My dad's a Marine. He flew 118 missions over Vietnam. He was the captain of his football team. He's driven as hell. And so I don't know where that came from, but uh, I've always wanted to finish the chapter. Yeah. I have to finish the chapter. Yeah. It probably drives the people around me crazy too sometimes, especially when I'm in relationships, you know, like with my kids, I'm like, you got to finish the chapter. And they're like, no, dad, I don't need to do that. So yeah, I'd be, it can be a little anal, right? Why is Kumbu Icefall a blind person's nightmare? What is that? Imagine a glacier, which is a big giant block of ice and taking like a bomb and explode it in the middle of it. So the Kumbu Icefall is a section of Everest where the glacier kind of gets condensed, it gets squeezed together, and then it drops over a cliff. Imagine white water, but it's frozen. So the bottom of the glacier is this stuff called plasticine. It's like kind of liquid ice, like plastic ice, but the top is brittle and it's exploding and collapsing. So there's like crevasses everywhere, giant popcorn ice, like from baseballs to skyscrapers piled on top of each other. And so every step is rolling and shifting under your feet. There's huge drops everywhere. You're zigzagging 
on snow bridges, the width of your boot over crevasses. You know, every single step could break your leg or kill you. It doesn't meet Americans with Disability Act standards. <laughs> no, definitely, definitely not. The first time, by the way, I went into the ice, Kumbu Icefall, I got so scared and overwhelmed because I was like, I can't take a step. It's so scary when you can't see and you don't. Because it's basically like nails on the ground and you can't see them. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And it's hard for someone that can see. Really hard. Yeah, really hard. Most of the deaths happen in the Kumbu Icefall. So you're like a ticking clock. You got to get through that. You don't want to be in that. because Or else what? Stuff's collapsing. It's big seracs, like towers, splinters of ice are collapsing over the trail. Literally, every day you go into the Icefall, it's a different labyrinth of ice because stuff has collapsed over the trail. Whole trail systems that the Sherpas have built, like little pathways, have collapsed like 50 feet down. There's sections where like it would be a snow slope and now it's like a vertical section. So you either have to ice climb up it or they'll put like ladders up it. So yeah, it's just this incredibly volatile section of the mountain that you cannot be in for very long. And so my first trip, I just gutted my way through. Well, that first trip, I didn't even make it. I turned back. And then the second time, it took me 13 hours to get through it. I've never been so crushed in my life. And then with nice icing on the cake, I got over that Kumbu Icefall and I'm hiking up the last little snowfield to Camp One. I am so absolutely crushed, like I'm seeing stars, you know, in my brain. And I tripped over a little tiny crack in the snow. And my friend tried to be nice and reach out and grab me. And he had an ice axe in his hand. And he bashed me with the blunt end of his ice axe right in the face. So I'm rolling around on the ground. There's blood gushing down my nose. I'm pretty convinced I broke my nose. And so I came into camp, just blood pouring down my face. And I've never been so close to passing out. Wow. And let's imagine I'm walking the Kumbu Icefall. How long? Is it a mile, two miles, five miles? Oh, who knows? How long is it? It's really hard because it's not a straight path. It's weaving and bobbing and stepping from boulder to boulder of ice. It's probably not that long. It's probably over 2,000 feet of elevation that you're climbing. Okay. But I don't know how long it would be. 2,000 feet, yeah. But the first time it took me 13 hours and then you have to cross through it you know, 10 times as you go up the mountain and set up your camps and because get acclimatized. That's, that's before you even get to camp one. Yeah. And you got to get to camp one to start thing. climatizing. Totally. And climatizing means what? Climatizing means getting your body used to breathing less and less oxygen. So you're actually building like the oxygen in your blood. You're building up your hemoglobin. And it's a physical process that takes several weeks to a month or maybe longer. And you're going to camp one every day? No, you don't go every day because you got to rest a ton on the mountain because you just like when you get to base camp at, you know, almost 18,000 feet, you got to lay around and just recover for four or five days. And then you take your first foray up the mountain, but it's called climb high, sleep low. You go up the mountain a little bit, you push that wall up the mountain, and then you come back down and you sleep as low as you can. And you keep pushing that weight up the mountain until you know you get to the summit but yeah you go up the mountain to camp one then you come back down then you go up to camp two and spend a while and then you come back down then you go up to camp three and you come all the way back down and then eventually you come up to the south coal and you summit from there so yeah once you finally climb the mountain you've climbed it like eight times the ice fall the, the whole ice. mountain how really. many times have you done kumbu ice fall up and down 10 times 10 times yeah did it get any easier or did you just get faster 
I just got faster and stronger. And my friends started learning how to communicate with me better. There's fixed lines through it that are like the lines that anchor you to the trail. And so my friends, knowing what lines to clip into, they just put their hand on the right rope and I would feel their hand and I'd go, okay, and I'd clip in. So like little efficiency things, I got used to like some of the things like where you step to the edge of the crevasse. My friend would say, okay, jump. And I knew what that meant, like how far it was. I'd hear him land, no hesitation. You jump across, you stick the landing. The ladders, there's dozen places where the crevasses are so huge, the ladders, the Sherpas lay, I don't know, four or five ladders lashed together with this Sherpa boat twine. And so you're walking across these crazy ladder bridges that are swinging in the wind. And even though I practiced that in my yard for a year, when you get on that first ladder and it's swinging back and forth and you know if you fall, you're going to be dangling in space on this line if you're lucky, if the anchor holds. I learned how to space my crampons and lock them over the rungs in a specific way. So it's just incremental saving energy, being a little more efficient, learning how to communicate better back and forth. And then the acclimatization process, you get stronger and stronger. My last time through the ice fall, I broke five hours. Wow. And can you help me understand the difference between ice picking the mountain? Ice climbing. Ice Uh climbing the mountain Uh versus just climbing the mountain? Well, in classic mountaineering, you have one ice axe. It's kind of a long ice axe. And that's the picture that I believe I'm looking at behind you. And you have crampons that bite into the snow and ice, really sharp crampons on your feet. And you're plunging your axe into the snow to be a kind of an anchor with every step. But ice climbing, you have two tools. They look like ice axes, but they're smaller. They have a hooked kind of beak and it's for vertical ice. And you're using two of them and you're hanging off leashes or you're hanging off handles and you're swinging those above your head into the ice. Your front points, your crampons have these points in the front. So you're kicking them into the vertical ice and then you're swinging these tools and you're basically hanging from your arms and your toes. What I'm looking at behind you is a picture of you with the ice pick or the Mm -hmm. ice axe. Yeah. And there's nobody in the picture but you. Yeah. You're going completely vertical up a face of ice that's cascading over the rocks of the mountain. I think that's on the Lhotse face on Everest, yeah. Oh, it looks insane. Yeah, it's big. Right there in this picture, and maybe you know what part I'm talking about, maybe you don't, but it doesn't really matter. Is your mind completely clear? Or are you thinking, oh shit, do not fall? You kind of waffle back and forth. But yeah, when you're at your best, you're, you are in that flow state for sure. And there's some debate, you know, how sustainable that flow state really is. But it's definitely, I've had glimpses of it. It's really powerful when it happens. And the Sherpas, I remember the Sherpa came by and he was a Buddhist. And there's a Buddhist phrase that said, the nature of mind is like water. If you do not disturb it, it becomes clear. I think there's a lot of validity in that philosophy because basically what it's saying is your mind is full of muddy water and that mud is like distraction and fear and anxiety and doubt and all these voices in your head, all these squatters in your head that are blabbing away and procrastination, all those things, right? And that's the mud. And so in the mountains or in the rivers, if you can let that stuff settle 
and say, I'm here for like a pure reason. I'm not second guessing myself. I'm taking one step at a time. I'm celebrating every single step. I'm here in the present and I'm moving through all these challenges as they happen, but they're going to be water off my back. When they're over, they're over, right? And, and then you move on. That's the best way to climb. That's the healthiest way to climb. Not thinking about your washing machine that's broken 5,000 miles away. <laughs> well, how long did it take you once you did it to get to the summit? Uh, it took like almost three months to get to the top. From like the time that you actually went for it? Yeah, I think it's three months door to door. So yeah, it takes nine or 10 days to get to base camp. And then, you know, you rest a few days and then you start up the mountain. So maybe like you're on the mountain for maybe two months, you know. So let me ask you this. In those two months, if you had to just guess, what percentage of time are you miserable? You are miserable, but that's another trick of the mountains is that you learn how to be miserable physically, but not be miserable in your mind because you know this misery, this physical misery that you're enduring is temporary. I think that's why older mountaineers still have a chance because you learn to discipline your mind in a way where you're like, okay, I'm the knower of the misery, all right, but I'm not miserable. It's a wild separation that you learn to kind of take an uncontrollable situation and bring it under control in your mind. And you say, this is miserable. I'm, this is, I'm tired. I'm hungry. I'm cold, but I'm okay. I'm within my comfort zone. Do you practice teaching your mind Let's bifurcate like physical and mental yeah. wellness going into one of these climbs. Obviously, there's the normal training that you have to do physically. Can you teach your mind how to prepare for suffering? Yes. It's all about suffering. I'd say it's, yeah, of course you're training yourself physically, but as important or more important is training yourself to suffer because everything big I found in life that you're doing, there's going to be suffering. You know, there's even a chapter in the adversity advantage, like suffer well, it's part of life. It's part of every religion. <laughs> so yeah, like before Everest, I would climb 14,000 foot peaks in Colorado in the winter. Not a chance in hell that you're actually going to reach the top because it's so crazy cold and windy. And you'd be wading through like chest deep snow. And we'd have this game for 12 hours. We're not going to sit down. You're going to take all our breaks standing up. And yeah, you're training your mind as much as your body to be able to suffer with a sort of grace and acceptance and then there's all obviously the skill training, you know what I mean? Like, how do I step from one icy boulder to the next, not being able to see, you know, that kind of stuff takes lots of practice in terms of being precise. So like you have kids now, right? You have mm-hmm. a daughter and a son, if I'm yes. not mistaken. How do you teach them how to suffer without suffering? You know, is it a cold shower in the morning? Is it putting themselves in uncomfortable situations? Maybe a different way of asking, can you teach grit in more bite-sized chunks than what you do? I think you can, but the person has to have a desire. If they don't have a desire, then you can't really teach these things. It's kind of ethereal, you know? My daughter, I remember she was like 12 and we were part of a no barriers climb. We were hiking up a 14,000 foot peak in Colorado and we had all these amazing people hiking along. I thought that would inspire my daughter and she got a little altitude sickness and she sat down and she said, Dad, I want to turn back. I don't feel good. And I was like, Emma, there's this lady with a full heart transplant hiking up above you and she's not quitting. And there's this guy that's had four strokes. There's this other guy who was 400 pounds and lost 100 pounds to be here. And he's not turning back. And she's like, thanks, Dad. My motivational advice totally backfired. <laughs> so I think words backfire way a lot. 
And so you have to be careful. You're, you have good intentions trying to motivate people and teach them, but they have to want to learn and they have to be able to receive it in the right way. So yeah, if somebody wants to do that, then yeah, they got to learn those lessons and hopefully they're open to it. But if they're not, then it doesn't work. And when you climb these mountains, you do it with what's called a rope team. Is that correct? Yes. Can you describe what a rope team is? Yeah. When you're on a glacier, it's so risky. There's crevasses zigzagging everywhere. So you actually tie yourselves together. It's really fascinating because you might tie yourself with three or four or five people together and you're actually connected by a rope. And so you're sharing the risk, you're sharing the reward. If one person on that rope team were to tumble or to fall through a snow bridge into a crevasse, say there's three other people on that rope, well, it's their job to slam themselves onto the snow, hammer your ice axe, the blade of your ice axe into the snow and break and stop that person from going. And it's saved many lives on the mountain. You've done that. Yeah. How do you assemble, build, and train with that team? Is that a meticulous process or is it just your buddies? It's both. It is your buddies, but you also train together and you want to be a team. I've never thought like going up and climbing a mountain with this sort of loose confederation of individuals that you don't really know and trust is a very good idea. So yeah, all my teams have always been people I know I can put my life in their hands and vice versa. You know, like on Everest, we had a commitment to each other. We were an actual real team on the mountain. That's very rare on Everest because most of them are these sort of guided groups and you barely know each other. And so when the shit hits the fan, nobody's really there for each other. Like I remember getting down from the summit and there were several people on our team still coming down. And I sat in the vestibule of my tent with my crampons and harness, everything, ice axe just ready, waiting for the last human to come down because I was ready to go out and help them if they needed help. That was our commitment as a team. And that's the way I think is the best optimal way of climbing a mountain with people that you've trained with, that you've suffered with, you've failed with, and you've tested each other out. And you've, and I know it's a little cheesy, but you actually have created this kind of amorphous power, collective power of the team being stronger than the individual parts. It actually does work. The year before Everest, we went as an entire team to a peak called Amada Blom. It's in some ways more difficult than Everest itself. It's a really daunting peak and it's about 10 miles from Everest. And we went there with the idea that we wanted to become a team, right? We were all like 13 really good climbers, but we hadn't tested each other, right? And so this was our chance. So we went there and um, a storm came in and I was stuck in a tent with my friend Eric Alexander for eight days. And we were perched on this little eagle's nest with like on this rock little perch with the wind hammering and the snow falling every day. And then finally the team got back up to us and they tried to push the route. The winds were so big, we couldn't move. We were out of food, we were out of fuel. We came down the mountain, we were tottering down the mountain in this terrible storm. Eric Alexander, my buddy who I spent the eight days with, he stepped on a rock and it gave way under his foot. He fell a hundred feet, he almost died. So now it turned into a rescue mission, trying to get him down the mountain kind of a nightmare, put him in a gamoff bag. It's a hyperbaric chamber that you pump air into, brings you down to a lower altitude. Finally, we got him out of there with helicopter came in, saved his life. That was my first trip to the Himalayas. And you might say, okay, that is an absolute disaster, right? One way to look at it, you go, that's a disaster. Everything went wrong. You were so unprepared. The other side of it though was, hey, we came here as individuals. The mountain gave us this amazing barricade that by crossing through it, we became a team. That's what we needed to be a team. 
And so it was really awesome because we were a team after that. What Paul Stoltz would say, the guy I wrote the second book with, is that teams are forged in the flames of adversity. It's true. If you're a strong team and you're committed to the process, then you know, it just makes you better. If you're a weak team, then yeah, you're going to fall apart and implode and turn on each other. This level of commitment that you have to achieving your dreams and your goals, what kind of toll does that take personally? Obviously, there's a physical toll, which I'd argue is actually making you pretty, you're in pretty good shape, I'd imagine, generally yeah. speaking. But is there a personal toll that it's taken? Yeah, for sure. It stressed my heart out, for sure, especially kayaking. We haven't really talked about that, but that was I'd say 10 times scarier than climbing. So there was a movie made about you. Yeah. Re- really good. It was actually really good. And when I was watching that, I thought, man, it must be way scarier climbing these mountains. <laughs> no, actually, when you're standing on the top of a river on the shore and you know you can't see and you're going to navigate into this insane rapid, and in two minutes, they're short, but two minutes crazy things are going to be happening to you. You're going to be, there's going to be a hole that's trying to grab your boat and suck you down and drown you. There's going to be rocks that you're slamming into left and right. There's waves that are going to be hitting you, hammering you like Mike Tyson from every direction. And you can't see one of those things happening. It is terrifying. It is suffocating. It is crushing fear. And so Going and learning how to kayak, I'm sure glad I did that after climbing because it was the next level of just going, okay, you got to accept this. But it was tremendous pressure because I kept thinking, if I do one thing wrong in those two minutes, I'm going to get thrown into a place in the river where I could be stuck and I could drown. And worse than that, my team's going to come after me and try to save me and I'm going to endanger all their lives that was so much pressure. And I realized, okay, the fear of drowning and dying is one thing, but the fear of like, I'm going to let myself down. I'm not going to be the man I wanted to be, that I want to be so bad. I'm going to be this guy who screws up and it kind of shatters the mental image of myself in my mind, having climbed Mount Everest. That was a lot of pressure. I know it sounds a little egotistical, but that was a lot. And so, yeah, that stressed me out a lot. There were times when I had, I don't know, I guess I'd call it PTSD and I was scared to get back in my boat. I had to work through a lot kayaking. That was definitely up in the ante. There was parts of the documentary where before you would hit a section of the canyon, and I think there's 17 different rapids. There's hundreds of them, but there's like a dozen big ones. Big ones, yeah, yeah. The ones that you think about. Yeah. These are two-minute sections. Yeah. But you were in the film dry heaving, thinking about the section, the upcoming section. Is that true? I was totally dry heaving. In fact, I still dry heave when I'm nervous. Like, that's my thing. <laughs> Even like on a mountain or oh, in the yeah. water? Yesterday, I climbed a big face called Royal Flush. It's like eight pitches, so it took us like seven hours. I found myself dry heaving a little bit beforehand. It's just physical, biological thing that I've always had to struggle with, you know? Is it because you're nervous? I guess so. And like mentally, I wouldn't say like I'm nervous, but my body is nervous. And so, yeah, before those rapids, I was dry heaving in the dirt. And my friend Lonnie would laugh and he would say, he's from Indiana. He'd say, buddy, don't bleed before you're cut. And I'm like, but I, that's me. I bleed before I'm cut. And I just have to sort of figure out how to deal with it. But yeah, no, so that's for sure stressful. You'd asked the personal toll. Well, like also, I'd say part of the toll was losing my marriage because I was away all the time, and eventually my wife was like, are you ever going to stop this? Is it ever enough? That got old, you know, like I'm on a vacation, a beautiful vacation, and I'm like doing pull-ups in the gym. And she's like, what's wrong with you? 
you know? So yeah, no, there's a lot of personal toll on life. And when you're trying to do this stuff, I know that some people would say, oh, you can go through this huge endeavors with kind of this Zen-like attitude where you're just sort of integrated into it. Sure, that stuff's few and far between. But yeah, no, it's a lot of decision-making and priorities and give and take and reward and loss. Sometimes when I go on vacation, I can't help but let my mind wander to getting excited about going back to work. It's sick. It's actually, it's so sad. Yeah. Do you ever feel that way? Yeah, but I'm getting better at it. I'm getting better at it. I know I still can't take a vacation and not make it physical. So I'm going to go on vacation in a few days, actually, and I'm going to the East Coast and Like the whole thing is planned out with like, oh, we're going to kayak across the lake and then we're going to kayak on the ocean in Maine and we're going to take walks. And so everything for me has to be physical, but I am trying to learn how to relax and just be okay with the small things because I think that's a really unhealthy way to live is like always anticipating, you know, in the second half of my life, I've been doing a lot of meditating a lot of counseling, a lot of exercises to try to bring my mind into the present. So I'm not always planning the next adventure. I always want to have goals. Like I always want to have big things that I'm striving for, but I don't want that to ruin the present moment. And in the past, I think that's happened where I'm not fully in the present because I'm always in the possibilities of what might happen in the future. And so if there's a way to live and navigate both sides that is, I think, what the healthiest way to do it. And so that's what I'm striving for, to live life in the present with joy, but also to have big goals. There's something that you do that really resonates with business people. You know, I don't know how else to say it. On the book, your second book, there's quotes from the president of Merrill Lynch, Stephen Covey, the Amex president, the president of DirecTV. One of the quotes that really stood out to me that I thought might tie these two worlds together in an interesting way, it certainly did for me, is you said there's one common thread that runs through all greatness, the effective use of space between stimulus and response. Can you explain that? Well, I stole that from Viktor Frankl, who lived through the Holocaust. And he said, you know, that was the way he survived the Holocaust, by separating and creating space between stimulus and response. And so for me as a kid, you know, going blind, losing my mom, all these things that happened that I felt were going to crush me, I thought, you know, okay, the only way I survive is I got to create a space here and understand that I have the power to make decisions. They're always hard decisions, but they're still decisions. If I can not just be reacting and responding like a leaf blowing in the wind, but actually proactively creating this space and then making decisions that are going to launch me forward through life. And I think I learned that through watching Terry Fox. He's this incredible guy that was a Canadian. And I saw him when I was going blind on That's Incredible. Remember, I don't know, you're probably not old enough, Juven, but in the 80s, there was this great show called That's Incredible. And I loved it. And I pressed my nose. I could barely see, but I pressed my nose up against the screen. And I'd watch it. And they focused this guy on named Terry Fox. And he ran across Canada, the thousands of miles, a marathon a day. He lost a leg to cancer. And that's when he decided he was going to run across Canada. Now, that's, to me, this perfect example of this decisions that you can make when you create that space. Because the thing that you're supposed to do when bad things happen is you curl up in a ball And you protect the little bit you have left, like it's abundance to scarcity. 
you know, like in the blink of an eye. And he said, no, no, I'm not going to let this tragedy crush me and diminish me. I'm going to get bigger. And I thought that's so incredible watching him run across Canada. And the crazy thing, sad thing is that he never made it because cancer came back and killed him. But uh, man, he lived big. He lived large. He took darkness and he turned it into vision. And that gave him tremendous energy for that run. That run affected a nation. I think they said he he raised a dollar per every Canadian citizen for cancer research. Their Terry Fox runs all over the world now. And I think his name has raised like almost a billion dollars of money for cancer research. So that's what I mean. And to me, that's the most powerful example I can think of this Terry. And I wanted to live like that. I wanted to be like that. You know, I remember watching him with tears pouring down my face thinking, I hope that light of Terry exists in me, and I hope I can tap into it as well someday. Well, boy, have you done that. One of the suspicions that I have, and I asked you earlier about this, like, why do you do this? Like, where does this come from? The last 80 feet, you know, even in the Grand Canyon, one of the things that you did, there was one of the hardest sections. What's it called? The, the hardest one? Lava Falls. Lava Falls. You were dry heaving before it. You couldn't have been more nervous. <laughs> yeah. It is a 10 out of 10 on difficulty. Yeah. Treacherous. Yeah. And you immediately hit the first part of it and you fell out of your kayak. I flipped over and yeah. I pulled my skirt. Yeah. yeah. And you went through the kayak. You went, sorry, you went through the falls. Yeah. Just holding on to the kayak basically. And the next scene. I wasn't even holding on to the kayak, I don't think. I think I was just I kind was just of swimming blind through a number 10 rapid on the Grand Canyon. And you were kind of putting on a brave face, like, I made it. That was good. And the next morning, you wake up and you asked your guide, Can we go do it again? Like, right. I want to do it again. Yeah. And so there's this pattern that keeps emerging for you of finishing the job. My hunch is that you want to see what your potential is yes. and what the limits of your potential are. And if you don't finish the job, then you're not really seeing through what that potential is because there's unfinished business. Yes. And that's and so tightly associated with what your potential, your perceived potential is. Also, yeah. And then the flip side of that is I don't want to live a life imprisoned by fear. It's just a pet peeve of mine. I remember sitting in the cafeteria when I was going blind and just being imprisoned by this fear that I've constructed. Part of it was the world, part of it was blindness, but part of it was my own mind. I've never wanted to live inside that prison. I just rebel and I want to know what fully living means. And so for me, these chances like going through the Grand Canyon or this experience of living. Now, I remember sitting below the lava falls, camped out there and trying to say, okay, it's good enough. You survived it. You made it through. Keep on down the river. Don't look back. But I kept thinking, our No Barriers organization, we have this kind of curriculum that I've developed, and we call it a No Barriers Life. And you think about these components of what this No Barriers Life looks like. And like I thought, oh, maybe that's just naivete, you know, like, okay, you build a vision of your life that sort of is your motivation and your why. And then you build this incredible team and you figure out all the systems and strategies and tools. And then you take bad things and you have that space and you create good things out of it. And I thought, maybe that's just like something you tell yourself. <laughs> maybe that's just the narrative you tell yourself to survive. It's an illusion, you know? I remember being really down. And then I thought about these people in my life that kept 
coming back and showing me bits and pieces of what that No Barriers Life looks like, including Terry Fox. These moments when you're scared and you want to kind of give in to the biology of your body that's dry heaving. You take a breath and you tap into that deeper thing and you say, no, this is the life I want to live. And so, yeah, I told Harlan, I crawled out of my tent. I said, what do you think about the possibilities of going back and doing this again? Because, yeah, if I swim again, fine. But the first time I failed on Lava Falls, partly because I gave in to my own fear. I wasn't fully present. I was so scared. I wasn't fully present. And so I said, I'm going to go back and whether I get trashed or not, I'm going to do this fully. And I want to know what that feels like. And yeah, there are moments when I was kayaking, when I would go into this Zen state and it was beautiful and you can actually take a breath. You can feel the breath between seconds. You're no longer like you against the river. It's just you connected with the water and the river and the canyon You're just kind of one thing moving through this experience. And I'll tell you, when you get it, it's spiritual. I know that sounds maybe a little cheesy, but it's it makes you realize that you're part of something really amazing. And then that thing vanishes and you're like, shit, I want to get it back. That is the thing that I've been thinking about this whole conversation is that hard things are opportunities to get closer to realizing what your full potential is. And that hard thing could be the Grand Canyon or Mount Everest, or that hard thing could be something very, very small in a given day, or it could be building a company or whatever that might be. I do think there's something so special about putting yourself in really difficult situations to see what your potential could be. Yeah. And then I know I'm a broken record, but then I keep coming back to this thought, which is, okay, go out and do those hard things and love those hard things, but then come back and learn how to do that on your couch. You know, Don't be an adrenaline junkie who's just like now using hard things as a drug. You got to be really careful. I got to get you out of here so we can go have some lunch. I was too scared to go on a hike with you. So we we (laughs) settled on lunch. I appreciate you. There is three books. Eric Weinmeier, go pick them up. You just released a couple documentaries. One of them just won. What what did I win? Well, the the last little 20 minute film I made about my friend Melissa Simpson, who has cerebral palsy, won the short award. It's the first shorter films (laughs) at the Van Fountain Film Festival. CEO of Touch the Top, if you're listening, talk about inspirational. I've had goosebumps since first time I've ever cried doing it prep for a podcast. So that's that. Reach out to Eric. Thank you, man. Last question I ask everybody. I can't wait to hear your answer. When you hear the word grit, what does it mean to you? Well, look, I've never had trouble coming up with big dreams and then going through the hard process of making those things happen. Like to me, I love that. That's where No Barriers is. Going through that process and converting all those uncertainties into things that are real. I love that process. I think I am addicted to that. So for me, it's more about time. It's about saying, okay, like, what do you get? How much time do you get? So what do you devote your life to? What's important? And you can't do everything. You're only going to be good at a few things. So how do you use that time to not break records, but to live a life that feels meaningful and fulfilling? So I didn't quite answer your grit question, but to me, that's what the question is. Eric, appreciate you. Thank you. Thanks. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Also, we love feedback, so feel free to email us, grit at kleinerperkins.com. 